Welcome to the Collection of Journeys podcast, where we explore the stories of everyday people who have had their lives changed by the blissful and therapeutic qualities of jhana meditation. In this episode, we talk to David Phelan, music producer and songwriter for some top names like Zane, Sia, and Blackpink, who was on a recent journey retreat. He shares how music, psychedelics, and a challenging time led him from identifying as a confident materialist to now a regular meditator. He developed panic attacks and then cured himself by intentionally inducing and observing them in meditation. For the first two-thirds of the interview, I ask him detailed questions about his background, habits, and decisions that led him to where his meditation practice is today. In the final third of the interview, he shares how his recent jhana experience was as personally significant as his wedding day and how he hopes to use jhanas to make music in the future with less fear. Welcome, David. We've been looking forward to chatting. So the context in which you and I met is on the uh, recent journey meditation retreat and where I know that you had a jhana experience. I've been looking forward to having a, an, ex- an opportunity to chat with you here on the podcast about what your background was, how you first got into meditation, and give our listeners a chance to learn a bit about you, what you do for work, that kind of thing, and then how the John experience came about, what it was like, and what it means for you. Thanks for coming on. Great. Thanks for having me on, and really good to see you again also after a very enjoyable retreat. Yeah. Um, I think I missed the very end of the retreat when you all got to hang out, but that was okay. <laughs> oh, because you, had, you had, had to catch your flight to London a little earlier. Yes, exactly. Zach was telling me some funny things about the end of it. It sounded very good. Yeah. But yeah, it's a pleasure to be on here. So I guess i introduce myself or whatever first. So I'm David Phelan. I am from Ireland, where I was born. I now live in London, where I've lived for the last 11 years, something like that. Not great with years and dates. I live here mm-hmm. with my wife. And my wife, Raphael, and my five cats. And five yeah, cats. Five cats, yes. <laughs> Raphael has a lot of compassion, very available to her all the time, and she cannot help and see a little creature suffer. So we had two, and then the other three are rescues that just keeps happening. So <laughs> we've said five is the limit. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Yeah, exactly. But yes, I grew up in Ireland in a place called Clare in the west of Ireland very green, beautiful place. And we grew up in the countryside near the woods, not too far from a little city called Limerick, uh, if anybody knows Ireland. I played music all the time when I was a kid, Irish traditional music. That's where we were made to do it when we were kids. And then everybody started to love music eventually. And some of us loved it from the start, but it was really good to be given all those lessons. My parents used to take us to lessons all the time. My mom, especially driving us to lessons all the time, very patient. Now that I drive, I realize how much effort the parents yeah. have to put in. Like that. Amazing how we learn to appreciate our parents long after the, what they do for us. Uh, I think definitely. you mentioned to me, though, that your dad is the one who's played music your whole life. So at the time, yeah. your mom wasn't yeah. a musician. No, she wasn't. My mom said that when they grew up in their house, they, mom, they didn't even have the radio or anything like that. So she didn't really hear music very much at all. And she grew up in the countryside in Kerry, in, this, in the west of Ireland, and like, before the 70s, parts of Ireland too were much less developed than they are now because Ireland joined the EU in 1973. And after that, it started to really pick up. But when my mom was growing up, it was yeah, a very different place. So there wasn't that yeah. much music for her growing up. But now my dad played music all his life because there was lots of music in his home. And now my mom is learning herself actually to play. And she has been learning for the last few years and she gets a lot out of it, does her practice every day and all that sort of thing. So it's really good to see. Because it's hard to do that if you haven't, you know, had music from when you were a kid or, or and you have yeah. to like grow all that stuff in your brain and, and get all that to hear melody and do those things. Because Irish music is taught by ear as well. 
usually not with notes. So it's different. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I think you, you mentioned to me that for a lot of people, they got into music and particularly spirit, like perhaps they got through into spirituality via music in the context of church with a really fantastic music program, but yeah. that was not your experience. No. Yeah. Uh, my experience would be like, I know a lot of people uh, in the music industry because I work as a music producer and songwriter now. And I know a lot of people in the music industry in London and the ones who I'd say would still have a uh, strong spirituality with like church and a more formal religion would tend to be the ones who have a lot of music and would, there would have been great music where in the church where they were growing up and that tends to keep them. So I think there's a big connection there. Whereas yeah. in church, the Catholic church in Ireland, I think it's a bit more performative for everybody and maybe a bit more about like social, like you had to go because everybody mm. would say that person. And the church that we had at music, they had at Christmas, sorry, they had really nice music. But other than that, I think the music was never really connected with me that much. So it was only when I got to 15 and stuff like that, I discovered a lot of music that I really loved myself. And that yeah. That's when I got obsessed with music and uh, started playing lots and just following that passion, which led me to eventually doing it for a career. It's great. a fascinating idea that the quality of the music program in your church environment may uh, somehow be associated or maybe be connected to the likelihood that you stay connected to your faith or to your church community in some way. As you point that out, I can think of many of the folks that I know in college who were uh, deeply spiritual, and many of them were in the choir and uh, remarkable musicians oh, yeah. and remarkable singers in their own right. And on the one hand, you could interpret that as here's, here's some sort of really like beautiful form of enjoyment that we associate with the church or with a religion. Perhaps on the other hand, it's through music that we, music can be a powerful tool to opening ourselves up to parts of the mystical experience, or the spiritual experience that might not be accessible otherwise. Um, I think that's definitely true. And even if you, because well, music is a language, definitely, you can tell that from the way children learn it and things like that. And so as we notice a lot on the retreat, like expressing the things of spirituality and, and the practices can be really hard to language. And so maybe music is another way that those things can be understood and, and communicated through time in a way that as well gets people's defenses down because aren't really, there might be chords or types of songs you don't like, but there isn't really trigger words and stuff like that in music. You know what I mean? It'll just be things that yeah. can speak to you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a, that's really interesting. We, one of the things I alluded to you before we, we we jumped on here and started recording is that we've been thinking recently about the untapped potential to use music to guide people into really profound altered meditative states like the jhanas. And part of this is inspired by an, an article I read about some of the great work they're doing over at Waypass, where they think perhaps the term psychedelic assisted psychotherapy should be replaced with the term psychedelic assisted uh, music therapy because of the mm. central role that music plays in creating these experiences that are quite long lasting in their, in their healing and a change of the internal landscape. And I know personally that there have been uh, tracks that I found on YouTube that I've meditated to for months at a time that sort of make it easier to drop in or recreate a certain genre experience faster than, than if I just do it in silence. And that's a fascinating and I think largely untapped and unexplored place to think really precisely about how we might use music to create mystical experiences. Yeah. And I think also there's that thing of it's people don't think of it as music, but it can be like, sometimes I will, if I'm in a really noisy place, sometimes I'll use the noise in meditating, but other times I'll be like, okay, no, I'll put on the headphones today and just put on uh, the sound of the sea or rain. And that mm -hmm. can turn into a very musical experience eventually and get you for meta or something like that. It can really get very evocative. Yeah. Those yeah. sorts of feelings. Yeah. 
it's fascinating. The more I think about this, the more I realize it's been hiding in plain sight. One of the things when I was, uh, I did when I was learning to really dial in my ability to enter into deeper meditative states is I would meditate to a track during my morning meditation. And then I would go to work. And at the time I was a software engineer. And so I would have large hour, large like blocks of time in which I would be coding. And I would put on the same track and intentionally so that I could have a little bit of that meditative like experience in the background while I was coding. And I swear that this helped, this helped mm. me kind of dial in and bring my meditative experience into the real world. And yet another way in which music has played an important role for a fairly unmusical guy like me. <laughs> I don't think anybody's really unmusical. They're just different. Uh, different <laughs> True that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no formal training over here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is great. I was starting to get an image for, for David, the young mu musician in a, perhaps in a church environment that wasn't the most musically inclined, but he emerged excited about music nonetheless. Tell, yeah. tell me about how like things evolved from that early childhood into what eventually became an interest in meditation. I think actually, and uh, sorry, slightly on that, what you just mentioned there as well, actually less in the church, but Irish music all happens in like the pubs. And so when you're a kid, oh. you're there and you're seeing everybody sing. And then the music is played as like instrumental pieces. And then in between that, just people will sing and it'll be like, everybody will sing, even if they can't. And the songs can be mournful and like very like evocative. So there's, I don't know. I, I realize now looking back that a lot of the things that I do now are trying to go back to those states. And it is like a, you, know, you give time and it's very like a connection sort of situation. Yeah, there's something very ancient, I think about it, ancestral, a bit like meditative, definitely. That's a very fun image. My, I've never been to Ireland, but the, I associate Ireland with a, with a profound and deep and, and powerful musical tradition and in pub tradition as well. So I can, <laughs> the, the images you're spinning up for me all sounds like something out of the, the movie Brave. Those things do actually happen. Yeah, it's funny. And actually some of the really, so Irish music that's played today, like that everyone consider Irish music, it's actually invented in like the twenties after as like a, a propaganda thing because they wanted to reclaim Irish culture that had oh. been destroyed. And so some of the oldest Irish music is called, actually called Shanos, which means the old way. And it sounds exactly like Icaros. It's amazing. I don't know what the people are saying because it's really old Irish, but when you hear it sung, it'll just be totally unaccompanied and very, not at all the same tonality structure as like modern folk music that you might associate, which is quite interesting as well. That is yeah. interesting. Wow, fascinating. Yeah, music took me to London. And then I think music got me into meditation really eventually too. I think I always knew I would end up meditating in some way. But I think when I first was encountering it or when I was younger, especially when I first would have looked for it, the internet wasn't that developed or maybe I didn't know where to search. And I just found out about concentration. And I thought it was always about concentration. I was like, oh, I won't be able to concentrate like that. <laughs> so, um, I just didn't. I tried a few times and it just seemed like boring or whatever it, I think. And how old were you when this happened? probably like 15 around that age okay. i remember one yes, day so. playing the guitar and i read like steve Vai is like a famous guitarist and he said something about meditating on one note and i did play one note for an hour once like he wow. said <laughs> but i only did it once and i was like oh that was very interesting and <laughs> didn't do it again <laughs> yeah 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 um, so i had this almost like an initial google search that happened at, at age 15 or so and then how did yeah, how did an Irish music-loving, non-spiritual guy like you eventually start sitting? 
eventually I went to a John Hopkins, who's an amazing musician who makes like techno and also like ambient music. I was going to his, I went to his concert for his album called Singularity and it was in London, in the Brixton Academy. And I went with two dear friends of mine and my wife. And we had certain, that was in 2019, I would say like October. Also, oh, so about four years ago or so. Yes, maybe it was 2018. One of the two. I'm so bad. Oh, very recently. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh. It was actually probably 2018. That's probably what it was. Something so, like that. Pretty recently. So this suggests that for a better part of your until relatively recently, you've not been spiritual at all. Yeah, I was very materialist. Very materialist. Almost like Clockwork Universe level. <laughs> materialist yeah. for a long yeah. time i felt very solid in that and didn't really think i didn't i obviously was always deep thinker i always thought about things but it didn't really bring me much i don't know i didn't contemplate uh the self much or things like that i more preferred contemplating the infinity of the universe and things like that mm-hmm. they were more interesting yeah, like philosophical inquiries or something yeah. yes yeah, yeah that yeah. sort of thing yeah and and then and, and I, did, did you study music in university as well? No, I studied psychology for a year and then I dropped out. I think um, I was just a little bit early because I reckon if I'd gone a few years later and the psychedelic renaissance was picking up, I might have stayed with it. But I didn't really respond to Maslow's hierarchy of needs and all those things. They just really, I thought, yeah. I didn't know later that Eastern religions were so far ahead of that. I discovered that much later, but I did find it a bit like, like kind of just intellectualizing very simple concepts and uh, and yeah stuff yeah. like that so I, I just eventually just kind of transitioned to music instead yeah i understand that the the road of the music producer is a hard and competitive road and you dropped out of school and you're still living in london and so is that has that been well, actually I'm, i was in galway in ireland when i dropped out of school and i just joined a band and just kept following music because i wanted to yeah and eventually i moved to london i didn't really think about it, i just really wanted to do it I remember my parents sent my sister to Galway to go, are you, are you really going to drop out? <laughs> I, was, <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm going to do it. And apparently my sister went back to my parents and said, he'll, he'll do it, he'll do it. He'll manage it in some way. Then eventually when I went to London, I got a job in a studio here and then just worked my way up. I think if I thought about it, I probably wouldn't have done it because the chances are really low. And I think it was at the total doldrum of the music industry too, just when I had the year where I had the lowest earnings that it ever had in wow. general. And it, When was that? Yeah. That, so that would have been like, yeah, 12, 12 years ago. That would make about sense. Not that long. When I dropped out and started doing music, it would have been just after 2008, which I think would have been definitely the time that yeah. <laughs> it was a bad year in the music yeah. industry. Yeah. Oh, um, was, was, so you dropped out in 2008, 2009? Yeah, around then. Around that year. Okay. Yeah, around I see. Yeah. And then... But then you mentioned something about 12 years ago, which would have been like 2011. So there's a few years. Yeah, that's when I moved to London. That's when okay. I started. Like before that, I was just like engineering in studios in Ireland, just trying to figure out, learn stuff myself because I didn't go to college to do the music. So I had to learn yeah. how to do programs. So I would just tell the studios that I wanted to work at that I knew how to do stuff. And if I got the job, then I'd go on the internet and learn how to do uh, okay, here's some of the hustle that I, I was suspecting was under the hood <laughs> if you've been in the music industry for so long. You taught yourself how to do sound engineering, taught yourself yeah. how, to, how to program, and, and like 
is this programming like the kind of programming that I'm familiar with as a software engineer, like Python? No, or, yeah, and, like, uh, programming drums and programming music and all that. And, and definitely ta taught myself a little, but also taught the internet. Plus also anytime I would know someone who's a live sound engineer, I'd try and work with them or I'd do whatever I could to, yep. to you know, learn from people. And then I, when I went to London, I worked in different studios and there I would learn from people. And eventually I met a guy in a studio in London, Alex Oriot, who's my songwriting partner. We both worked in a studio. We really got on and we just started making music together like every day and eventually started to get some success. And then, yeah, I managed to leave the studio world and just write songs all the time as a living. So that's. And so when you write these songs and then other people perform them. Yes, exactly. I can sing like folk music. Okay. But I can't sing like pop songs. So we work with talented songwriters who work with us and we'll suggest melodies and make chords and work like that together. And then that, those will get released by people. Hopefully. Yeah. Are <laughs> you don't there, get paid to get released. Are there maybe names that me or the audience might recognize? That uh, yeah. So we have some, yeah. One of our biggest song is Dusk Till Dawn with Zane and Sia. Oh, That's those actually, are some names. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That actually, that one we found out the other day is one of the only, there's only 84 songs with more than 2 billion views on YouTube. And that's one of them. So wow. recent, recent. I'm, I'm, I can't wait to watch this. After, uh, <laughs> the video after is epic actually. And, and Sia is amazing. That was a really good uh, music day as well. I remember when we first heard about Sia's vocal when it came back to us. Yeah. And then just people like that. I'm also bad when I get asked like UK, big UK acts and some other American acts. Like we did Nicki Minaj track for her and some other people like that as well. Yeah. Oh, cool. Very we did cool. Blackpink actually. We had something on their recent album that was number one in America too. So. Wow. Wow. That's great. So now and uh, after you've come a long way from teaching yourself how to do some of this work and telling other people you can already do it. And now you're in a spot where it's it's not job security is in question or the hustle is so uncertain. You're in a place where you're hustling, but you've you've made a name for yourself. Yes, exactly. And that actually would take us to the meditation thing then as well. So like I was saying, I was going to that concert. Uh, yes, I wanted to go back to this. Tell yeah. me. In Brixton with yeah, my two good friends and my wife, and we had certain substances and went to the concert. And it was his, the concept of the album is the universe from the singular from the singularity from the big bang the singularity to now basically and i guess into the future but there's no words it's just techno music doing that and uh, i had such a beautiful experience at the, the, the concert we all did and it was just really i didn't really think about it i was just like oh wow he is amazing at making music and i felt like he knew something i didn't as far as like tension and release goes and things like that in wow. music. Is this the language that you would use now? Or is this language that you would have used in real time? Like leaving this concert, you're like, this guy knows something about tension and release that I don't? Or is this like current yeah. David? It is, but I, it's funny. Actually, you just pointed out that I didn't realize that's what I was referring to. And tension release in music is when, like, when you have a chord like that goes like, and it has that, and then you gotta, and it, one thing feels home and everybody feels that, that kind of tension of the first one to the release so it's not the same but i know what you're talking about I, uh, yeah yeah should release in meditation and that hadn't occurred to me and that's important for good music and for taking people on a journey especially in electronic music like techno and things like that because you don't tend to have the chord progressions be the same so you need to be more creative in how you provide the tension and release and he is very good at that but the next, the next day after the concert i remember feeling so like loose and my shoulders were like free of weight and I put on some I, everybody was a little worse for wear but I don't really get that day after stuff like that if I don't drink I'm totally fine so yeah. I was like, oh I'll go get everybody like a, I don't know 
breakfast. Like I went out to get some pastries or something and I put on some bark and it was like a beautiful day. And I was like, oh, I feel really good. I was like, well, I can't do what I did last night all the time. So I <laughs> think I'd heard things about John Hopkins meditating and doing stuff like that. So I said, I'll do a bit of that myself and see what happens. And because that experience had been so powerful, I actually just kept it all up. So I started with Wim Hof breathing and okay. cold showers and then yeah. yoga every day and started exercising. And then in the Wim Hof thing, he just did a two minute meditation at the end. And I think it was like a Nimitta meditation because he basically just said, just sit there and close your eyes until you start to see some colors and then concentrate on the colors. And, and come to this was Wim Hof that was guiding yeah. you. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 I had, and I had I had I'm sorry, say that again. I just started doing two minute meditations with that, which I think is such a good way in because it just takes away your kind of fear of sitting. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's great. That's a great start. And, and I can imagine yoga, cold showers, Wim Hof. These are all things that clearly demarcate this, like wherever the nervous system was before you start and wherever the nervous system is after is quite palpable. And yeah. definitely. And, and it was because I think because the experience had been so powerful and positive, it wasn't some judgmental experience. I should feel like that. It was like, oh, that's such a really nice way to feel. I would yes. like to feel that way. So I yeah. just kept with it and kept doing it. And, and I would do it after exercise, which is something we touched on in the retreat. And I didn't realize till I realized after a while of doing it, if you do a really heavy hit or something like that, I was doing CrossFit at the time. And then you go and you do meditation, like the chances, your mind will just be a lot more pliable. I find sometimes to just, because yeah. you're really happy sitting down. So just like you're getting those endorphins. Yeah. So. Endorphin high. You're, yeah. you're, the, the monkey mind has often settled after an intense workout. You're yeah. in the body because mm -hmm. of all the, the physical activity that's been at play recently. A great combo, I think, to sit after you work out. Yeah. And then, so I kept that up for a good two years. Very, it wasn't strict. I just kept doing it. I was really liking to do it. It wasn't hard for me to do it. And then. And this is, what is this? Like 15 minutes every other day? Is this like an hour every day? Like the meditation was probably only two minutes there. And maybe I extended it then to like, then I started doing an hour every day. But I think I was very tight practice. It was a very tight practice when I started doing the hour because I read because at the time I was stay chasing a little. So I think when I started getting into meditation, I read about the jhanas pretty early on. I was like, I want to get there. And I was like, how do you get there? Laser focus. So, <laughs> so I just tried, what's the book? The you know common the one misperception. One? Yes. Yes. Uh, it was the Ajahn Brahm. Is that his name? The, what's the jhana oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I read that. And I was like, okay, I know how to get there. I'll do that. And I got very... So, that laser so, so let me see if I can, if I've got the sort of timeline down, right. You go to a concert, you have a pretty remarkable experience. And afterwards out of, from a place of like curiosity and play, you're like, let me do some more of this. We've got some Wim Hof yoga, cold plunging that might be happening. And then this is something like 15 minutes every other day for a year or two. No, I would say 15 minutes for probably like six months and then going to an hour for a year and a half. That's what oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So you're doing 15 minutes pretty regularly for six months. Yeah. And then you decided to really up it to go all the yeah. way. To what, what changed? Was it an experience? Was it something you read? Why yeah. I think learning. Read? Yeah. Reading. I read the, the Jana sounded like a really interesting way to get closer to now I would see it in a way of I was looking to get some realm of going or something like that. I didn't read it in that yeah. lens at the time, but yeah, something I felt that there was more because I was sitting and I was doing the 15 minutes and it was interesting and nice. I, but I wanted to see how far that could go. Yeah. And, and this is you do Wim Hof and then you sit for 15 minutes afterwards. Yeah. So exercise yeah. Wim Hof, sit. 
yoga. <laughs> oh, that was a nice combo. Was, okay. Yeah. So, so, so this is a whole routine exercise when yeah. mom sit yoga and you're doing this. I, I know cold shower before. also before the yoga. Before the yoga. And so this is going to take you what? An hour, two hours to do? It took two and a half hours. I was getting up at 6, 6 20 every morning or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So for this six months, it's not just that you have, oh yeah, 15 minutes of meditation is nice. It's you've got a full on two hour habit that you're doing every morning starting yeah. at 20. And it happened just like that as well because the concerts experience was so like moving. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Wow. Okay. So you had a moving concert experience that just immediately translated into two hour a day yeah. morning practice. Yeah. That I was is... watching a video about integration the other day where that guy, Adeptus Psychonautica, he's quite a good, no-nonsense YouTuber. And he was saying that when he was talking about integration, he was trying to say, everyone's trying to sell it in some way or something, but he was like, really, it's just translating an action into your life. And I was like, oh yeah, it can just happen sometimes. And I didn't consciously do that. It just did happen. Yeah. But yeah. I'm definitely not a person who is getting up, going to the gym every morning, like consistently or doing things like that before that experience. Yeah. It is, it is fascinating. Prior to having a, an experience, you really have a bootstrap problem because you have less clarity as to what kind of experience you might create for yourself and how to do it and less motivation to do so. But if you have an experience, then something like habifying, like the, the recreation of that experience is like not, sometimes isn't even a question. It's like, what do you mean? Of course yeah. I want to do this. This is incredible. I would absolutely love it. It's effortless. Uh, yeah. And I think there's something too, for me, which speaks to like why there's certain substances I like is that it didn't feel artificial. I didn't feel like I had been like hopped up and that's why I felt so good. I felt that I had yeah. tuned into something extant and real that I just been given access to through these substances. And I didn't really, didn't make sense to me that you would only be able to access things like that through ingesting something. It's obviously in you. That made sense to me a lot. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating that some people report like on, on a substance that there's just a sense of, no, that was even more real than my typical experience. And it sense, mm-hmm. that was very accessible. I just have this intuition and perhaps on other substances or in certain sets and settings, that's less known. Okay. So I'm getting a, a clear picture. You have this pretty remarkable experience that was both music and substance induced that catapults into a two hour a day, uh, routine that involves yoga breath work exercise wow you did it all this is in my mind this is like the road to (laughs) to to advanced meditation and the road to increased baseline happiness yes there are bumps though (laughs) oh i'm sure there are i know i want to hear those but just so then i have it right you start reading about this stuff too is that what's happening in this six month period okay yes yeah very like yeah, like audiobooks and books. I just, I love nonfiction. I just love learning. I've always been really curious. And I love reading very deeply yeah. into things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what are the, what are the things that you're picking up in this period? You mentioned John Brahm with yeah. other people and other resources that were starting to influence your thinking about this. You have this two hour habit, but only 15 minutes is meditation. I think I'm trying to think what, how much I read. I found more, I think I found more teaching and more Dharma talks after I think that I still had my materialist hang up and I even found people like Wim Hof, like I had to drop. And this, I think is one of the things that helped me from that concert experience. I had to drop that feeling that I used to do, which is when anybody said one thing that I thought was just a bit woo, that I would just discount a lot of the things they said. And I thought a really bad habit of doing that. And it was, yeah, that was a real thing I definitely had. And it was quite disrespectful in some ways or just dismissive. I see. I'm not judging myself for it. I'm just saying that I was aware That's of that. So I think in that time, yeah. I did still do that. So let's say 
I would have read about meditation, but it always been with the cause. I'd be like, I want to be able to focus more. I want to be able to write more music. It was a bit capitalistic, like the way I was trying to. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, I see. I see. So, like, initial relationship with meditation was, was, was effectively like, oh, this would be a way of productivity gains. Yeah, yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So the happiness side too, and then the productivity gains too. Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> so two part. It's yeah. I get more happiness. I get productivity. Yep. Yeah. Great. I, and- I think probably the happiness I thought would come more from the cold showers and the Wim Hof and the exercise, and that the meditation would help me focus. And you know, mm, fascinating. Yeah. Yep. Makes sense. And. Yeah, those are good reasons to, to engage yeah. in these kind of, and, But this is a really interesting observation, I think, and, and one that I certain, like, certainly resonates with me and one that I think I've heard from people that there's this, like, if you're listening to somebody who says something a little woo, that is a red flag. You're like, wow, this person isn't explaining things in either the simplest ways or the most likely or like plausible ways. And by association, what else do I need to be a little skeptical of? Um, but at some point, you decided that, like, um, dismissiveness to, to use your term was not that helpful and how did that come about how did you decide that there might be a different way to engage with the content from somebody who occasionally says things that sound pretty woo i think the things like the wim hof like you could feel what that did to your nervous system so i'm like yeah okay he says loads of crazy things but <laughs> sometimes but when people start going about the pineal and all those sort of things, kind of pseudoscience stuff, just using sometimes that I would, that would have torn me away. But then I was like, but yeah, but I know how I feel after that. I feel good. So, okay. So maybe not everything that these people are saying is true, but like perhaps the practices have something. And then also I would see things like where he had, I looked into the history of where he got his stuff from the tumor meditation. I saw these like monks, like meditating and drawing sheets off their back and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, so maybe they're onto something too. I'll look at that later on, but didn't get back into it. Okay. So there's like a whole world of woo out there. And Mm. uh, some people are talking about pineal gland, quantum stuff. And other people are like, just do a lot of this breathing. And you're like, wow, okay. When I did a lot of the breathing, (laughs) felt felt pretty remarkable. So yes. I wasn't expecting that. Let me then look at the adjacent woo area and we've got the yeah. tumor breathing. And then maybe even the, the pineal gland folks, like maybe there's something there. They're just explaining it in weird ways or something that yeah. I'm not buy into. So I'm going to proceed with a bit more open-mindedness. Exactly. Yeah, that was it. it. And I just decided to look that way because I realized that it was probably a bit more immature or just like, also, you don't have to give up your whole rationality when you listen to the people, you can give them their time and take their opinion. If you don't like what some of they say, then throw that bit away. And absolutely. Yeah. 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 You're not doing yourself an injustice by listening to somebody and, and entertaining. No. In fact, that's what real rationality is, is let me, yeah. I trust I will be able to return to the, the most rational conclusion if I suspend belief for a minute and rebuild from first principles or from what I'm hearing. I think that's great. And tell us a little bit more about tumor breathing and what you learned when you looked into that after your Wim Hof experience. I just saw that was what he had adapted. And I still said, I guess that was on that thing of being the physical side. So when I was seeing that, I, it wasn't because obviously they are, I think they're doing fire casino and then they're doing the breathing at the same time. I think that's the practice. Uh, if I'm wrong, I could be wrong on that, but I'm I just saw, yeah. I, I yeah. saw a pretty stunning video where it was, they were sitting out in like the, in Tibet and they were putting wet sheets on them and drying them off, off the guys doing the, the tomb mm-hmm. of fire meditation. Yeah. And it, what do you mean drawing them off and like Sorry, dry, drying place? so they would put the oh, wet sheets on them in the cold so they'd be out in the cold and they would just put the wet sheets on them and then the sheets would be dried by these guys like doing the thing i've seen a video of it, it was like crazy wow 
Wow. I, Stuff I, that you see in Tibetan, in Tibetan Buddhism sometimes when you eventually your mind is open, you're like, why is the world ignoring this stuff? This stuff is crazy. <laughs> Maybe you're, I might put this into the list of links I want to follow up on Tuma breathing drying sheets. You think this will get me to the Google thing? I'd say it will. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put the, maybe if we can find the video, we'll put it into the, the notes or something right. afterwards. But okay. So the, thank you for indulging me as I dive into some of these details. But I think I'm now getting a clear picture of how you're now starting to consume more resources. You're saying, hey, let me proceed with like healthy skepticism as opposed to dismissive skepticism. And uh, I get to the six months mark or so. And at and, and this point, rattle off for me again, some of the resources that, you're, that you've drawn inspiration from. I think I the main Brahm. one was the Ajahn Brahm. And then just, because I, I was more still a little, not wanting to, I wanted to stay on my own path more, I think. I was like looking for the technique in the quickest way I could find out what it was and then just trying to do it rather than reading a whole book where people talked about stuff that I didn't at the time want to oh, hear about. Fascinating. Yeah. So this is, yeah. I think that this is an interesting point too, because there are very, there are different ways in which people engage with this material. And you're like on the, on the spectrum from like uh, what you might call like scribing to conjuring or scribing to like experimenting. You're, it sounds like you're clearly on the experimenting side. You're not like reading and reading um, and, and drowning yourself in books. You're like, Give me a tiny little piece of information and I'm going to go play with it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's what I would have been doing at the time. So I think that's why I wouldn't have that many people names I can think of them because I would have just looked up again and be like, okay, sure. that one was interesting. What else can I do? What should I be concentrating yeah. on? What do cool. I need to focus yeah. on? Yeah, and then something changes and you decide to go for a full hour of meditation a day. Yes, I think what that I just, sometimes I would come back and do the shorter meditation and I could see that my mind just would go off and I could separate it from it a bit, just see it thinking. And I was separate and I was like, okay, let's go further. I want to see. And I wanted to just get more out of the States. I wanted to see where they lead to. So this yeah. too was also like, th th this was organic, but perhaps it wasn't as like sudden as your uh, concert experience and that you, you just wanted your meditations to get longer more gradually yeah. as you. Yeah, I think part of it too would have been that I wanted, I noticed in my job every day when you're writing songs, you're every day, no matter how many times you've had success, you're like going in and you're like, oh, I want to make a hit, I want to make a song. And you get this yeah. battle with your ego. And I think sometimes you like have fear when you're creating. And I wanted to learn to look at the fear differently. Or to, I wanted to learn actually at the time, I think I was trying to get rid of the fear, which we'll get into later on. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. As in, so I think that was part of it too. I was like, if I meditate more, then maybe I will be able to be more, I think at the time in control of my thoughts is how I was thinking. I'll be able to control mm -hmm. creativity. I'll be able to control my state of mind. Yeah. 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 I think that the, the desire for control around some of these things is that resonates with me too. It's like at some point in time, that was important to me. Um, yeah. And uh, say a little bit more about this fear motivation. So you're, you mentioned this idea that you would sit down and you would really want to build a hit and there's some sort of fear in the system. I think that sometimes it just, there can be fear that stops you from communicating authentically with a new person you've met who you're trying to tell whether you do something or don't. There can be fear about, I feel like you're just wasting sometimes brain cycles being afraid of, can I make a song today? Can I make a hit? When really you should just like open to source in some sort of manner. And I just wanted to, not use those cycles to do that i was still being very like engineering about it you know what i mean thinking yeah. this is what i because i trying to find trying to find a routine that would make me make sure to get a good song that day or something creative or good yeah that sort of thing yeah i've i've 
her various takes on the framework of are you living from a place of like joy and play or from a place of like fear and, and anxiety or something. And I think I remember a podcast I really enjoyed with Jim Detmer from the Conscious Leadership Institute, who I think is a like pretty prominent executive coach and talks a lot about being above, above, above or below the line in reference to operating from this kind of place. And it, it also resonates with me that when you really step into your most like peak performance moments, uh, almost never is it from fear. It's almost like from a place of flow, play, mm. those kinds of states. But interesting to me, that was part of your journey here. Like the cobbling together, how some of these things, how some of these decisions that you, you made along the way and what they were motivated by at a given point in time starts to, I think, build a richer picture of where you, how you got to where you got. Okay. So six months into meditation or so, you're now starting to ramp up. You've got the, you're, and you're starting to notice things in the real world, like this sort of relationship with fear when you're producing music and how do things evolve from there? And so then I do a good solid year of the practicing an hour a day. And I feel like I establish good concentration. Now, looking back with more knowledge of what was going on, I can see that I was actually probably getting to states like first jhana, but because I was trying to concentrate so hard. And then as soon as I would see the state, I would go for it. And I'd be like, oh, and I just grasp and then use it. And I remember, I think yeah. my first experience of PT would just be like jolts of the head. And as soon as the head jolted, I was like, that was going somewhere, but I, I couldn't get, get to the place where it went because I would just keep trying to grasp because I was trying yeah. to concentrate. Yeah. And that, <laughs> yeah. that word you used, uh, PT, just so for Sorry, yeah. as context. Yeah. Actually say what your understanding of PT is in your own words. Uh, for me, it's like, uh, lots of people describe it as like rapture or like joy, like bubbly joy. I almost see it as just like, I don't know, like fizzy bubbles in your body or just like the, your body starting to move yeah. for me the body plan feeling that even if you're sitting down your body suddenly feel like it's on the side or flattened or something like that just you can sense that a altered consciousness is starting uh, yeah that i'd say would be that's the, the word in the canon for it is pt and it's a useful word because it covers all those experiences yeah yeah so a full year of an hour a day and mm -hmm. as as you say you learn how to concentrate and then where to from there? So then I was like, I'm going to do a, a psychedelic journey and I'm going to set my intention to be, I think I set the intention to be like, create without fear. Now that's a bad idea <laughs> huh? because in then, in the trip started getting a bit freaky or whatever. And then I was like, oh, this is a scary trip. And then I realized like, oh, I can't control my mind. I can't control my thoughts. And I'm like, okay, what I can do is I can do my mantra and I'll do my mantra. And then when I look again, I won't be thinking that thought that I was just thinking. And then do my mantra. And I'm like, am I thinking the thought? And then as soon as obviously I look, I'm thinking the thought. I just totally <laughs> freaked myself out, spin out so bad, like really like very like anxious. And yeah, I never also I'm quite baseline, happy and chill most of the yeah. time. Yeah. I think. Um, I don't, not particularly for most of my life, not a particularly anxious person or anything like that. So suddenly be, uh, uh, cast into a world of anxiety and, and like bits of panic attacks and stuff like that. Um, pretty intense. So that was like, oh shit, I don't really know wow. what to do here. So had you, you started, ha you use the word panic attacks, plural, like you started having panic attacks. Yeah. Yeah. Trip. Yeah. I did because the first one was in the journey. I'd never experienced one in my life before. And so that was very strange. Not a bad time to have a first panic attack <laughs> yeah. on your own. Yeah. yeah. Um, so silly. But it, it's part of the journey. That's what happens sometimes. I think always I knew that I would 
find a way through. I think even the next day after it happened, I was like, oh, I think I'm trying to be taught something here, but I just don't know what it is yet. <laughs> and so, yeah, I would have like panic attacks. And then also I got like a real aversion to altered states in the body because like bodily activation got associated for me with the like, feeling of going to lose control or like thoughts that in yeah. that sort of way. So then when I would try to meditate for a while then and feelings of PT and those sorts of altered states would come up, I'd be like, ah, and it would freak me out. So, so I stopped meditating for a good, how long? Probably a year. Yeah. Maybe oh, wow. Six, yeah. No, six months, I would say six months. Yeah. I didn't meditate regularly. And I, my whole kind of routine, it was around COVID time too. So my kind of routine crumbled. crumbled. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And how many panic, what was the frequency of these panic attacks at this chapter? I would say every few weeks. Yeah. Every wow. Few weeks. Okay. So every few weeks. And if I had attack. cannabis, you could pretty reliably bring one on as well. Oh, yeah. lovely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, just what we're looking for. I wouldn't bring on panic attacks. And, so, and, and tell me about, give, give me a sense for the texture. How would this panic attack start? What would happen physiologically? What was, the sh what was your attention on and the shape of your attention during the panic attack? So like really elevated heart rate, like clammy, and then maybe sometimes accompanied with a sense of like total, like gravity falling, like falling really low into the ground. Yeah. Huh. Like you're sinking. Yeah. yeah, but not sinking didn't do the justice to the speed, just like, like drop. Oh, like you're like plummeting. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, just like that, like that sort wow. of thing. And just wow. like the heart rate would go up. Like just, just you could, I guess it's adrenaline, right? So I suppose just yeah. fight or flight, bang, like that. Yeah, and this would happen to you spontaneously or this would happen because... Yeah, maybe sometimes it'd be like, maybe like a sometimes a movie or a certain thought or those sorts, yeah, like stuff like that. That would mainly be the, I'm trying to think. And could you see it coming? Mm, I'd say I could make it come by accident. If you see it coming, you'd be like, oh, there's, if I start thinking about this, then now I think that it was very mental based. It was based on like yeah. thoughts I found. Yeah, yeah. So I'd be like, oh, if I go down that road. Now, like, I don't want to go down that road. And then I would go down. That road. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this sounds rough. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it was like very, it was like, oh, it was strange. And then, so that went on for a few months. And also I think a contributory factor to all of this was a, my, my best friend in 2019, he suddenly got very mentally ill and it was like just out of nowhere and psychosis and just wow. totally, totally changed his life. It seemed like it was obviously out of nowhere to us. There was things in his life that led to it and stuff like that. But it was just so, that was so one day I was talking to him and then, Two weeks later, his like parents are like bringing him to meet me to bring me to the airport, and it was just so crazy. And I think wow. that plus another tragedy in the family had maybe subconsciously instilled like a fear of the mind and madness and yeah. things like that. Yeah, so I think that's what was manifesting through these sorts of panic and things like that. Yeah, yeah, just like a connection to that. But so after about a while of that, I was always like. I think also there is some level of ontological shock going on in slow motion from that really great period of things being good, but being so materialist. So then I think I, my way of out of things is to help myself. And I, I real, after I've made more effort to reach out and to talk to people about things and to be more like vulnerable, but at the time I'm like, okay, I'm going to read, I'm going to find things out and stuff like that. And I remember things like 
I remember re look, realizing that the periodic table of elements, which is something I'd always considered so beautiful and perfect and explains things. I realized that each and every single one was dependent on all the others. <laughs> the atomic number of something doesn't mean anything unless there's another thing that it fits into. And in isolation, all of those things are completely meaningless. If there was a universe where one of them was on its own, then it would just be a completely, it huh. would be nothing. So, and, and so I, you had this like observation of, of the like interdependence of the periodic elements. Yes. Yeah. And that was like, and because that was such a, a key thing, it freaked me out. I was like, fuck, there's no ground to stand on for a while. So I think I was huh. like getting realizations of emptiness and things like that from, yeah, those yeah. sorts of. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it Just out of the blue, suddenly talking about the periodic tables seems, wait, what? Why is this <laughs> sort of such a serious, almost existential question? And but independently accounts of people really grappling with philosophical questions earnestly and then being like, wait a second, it's all changing. It's all meaningless or something yes. is very real. And then separate from that, we know from you know, frequently talked about in typically in Buddhism, the, the like contemplation of some of the, and some of these deeper truths can be deeply unsettling. And it mm. sounds like this through a combination of panic attacks and maybe some prior meditation experience and exposure and a lot in the mental health dynamics elsewhere in life, something seemingly as mundane as the periodic table happened to be one of the straws that contributed to yeah. bring camels back. I get, you can say seemingly mundane, but it's like such a, a crowning achievement of like humanity. And if you see it in a certain light, it's, it does feel like it's got an answer because it's all true all over the universe. It's got these things and if you didn't look deeply enough out of it it does seem like a pretty big answer to the question until you realize that it's just a, a fabrication it's i'm not knocking how amazing it is and, and like per, that, how much beauty it has but there is something it's what we're made out of um and it is also empty which i realized at the time and i think that those sort of things were just that was that my I, th I think about it now in that way of that i've discovered afterwards that when a caterpillar goes into a cocoon right no the, yeah cocoon yeah. Yeah, they yeah. digest themselves they don't just i always thought they just changed no they like fill it full of <laughs> digestive juices and then they reform again and i think that sometimes sometimes journeys can be that way and you can the mind has to like I don't know, change a lot to yeah to, there's some sort sometimes of sometimes that can be a little hard yeah <laughs> yeah transformation can there can be a scary aspect to transformation because it involves yeah. such a deep yet yeah, end of what was in order to start mm. what's new sort of thing well, i don't think that's a, a, at all inevitable i think part of it was because i wasn't the, the way i got at my teaching didn't have enough was the wrong approach for my type of psychology i think that's why i ended up in mm. that we'll get to that actually with the next video say it started to help me then i started to follow Minger Rinpoche and I don't know how I must have been looking up panic and meditations and things like that and yeah. Minger Rinpoche Tibetan just has a lovely vibe very calming and all of his meditations would be about allowing and everything every time he's talking he'd just be like he'll tell you about meditation he'd be like it's okay he'd be like, whatever you think of that's okay and he's like when you're not when you're not aware and then you realize you're aware then you're aware there's no problem there was any just like these sorts of like very that wasn't my approach before. And I just started to do that. And the one that really got me and like really helped me the most, I think with the panicky stuff was this one where on the out breath, you were with the breath and on the in breath, you could think about whatever the hell you liked and you were not doing anything. <laughs> and the combo of the two of those, and because it was changing, just totally took away that part that goes, oh, you should be doing nothing. And then the part that goes, you should be on the breath and it would just calm yeah. and it was very powerful. And then little by little then, 
from the way he talked, it gave me this new kind of foundation because he talked about things like basic goodness and stuff like that. And to me, they stood up to a rational examination of what they are. Even like the people who've done the worst things in the world were trying to be happy or to please themselves, even if they do it really wrongly and mm. uh, in a terrible manner, those sorts of things. And like that really resonated with me because I'd seen things ha- like because of my friend and stuff like that, the bad things that yeah. had happened to me and some other people. And that those sort of things then started to give more of the heart to the teaching. And that's when I started to get back into meditation heavily again after that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. The two two thoughts that I had in response to that. The first is the there's this great quote, I think, by Marshall Rosenberg that should is the most violent word in the English language. And it how happy of a how happy of an event for you that you found a, a teacher or a way of doing it that allowed you to escape the show trap that is so frequently mm. part of the dissonance and the violence and the negative trips and the and the um, anxiety loops that we can find ourselves in. Yeah. Do you think that Mingyur Rinpoche would have resonated in the same way with you two years prior to psychedelic? That, that's that's, that's a good question. I'm not certain that it would have. And I don't know if any of the things could have happened at other times. <laughs> yeah. For me, I don't know if I would have. I definitely felt as well because I then, when I would tell friends about this kind of thing, and so I just found out that friends of mine, some of them have had panic attacks since they're like six years old. I'm like, what? I'm like, really? You've lived with that your whole life, that kind of thing. And so that suffering opened up a lot of the, opened me up a lot. Like that kind of, yeah. the, cracks, the cracks are where the light gets in and that sort of thing. So I do think that was part mm. of the thing for me. And that's all, even the Buddha's, the mythical stories with the Buddha where he's in the garden and everything's all good. And then he starts to see the suffering of the world and that changes him. And so that really, all of those things resonated with me a lot. And that's the stuff I hadn't really looked at before that. Yeah, I was always trying to find secular Buddhism before that. I just remember the other one I read was "Why Buddhism Is True." The uh, oh yeah, that's I'm blanking his name right now. Is a bachelor? I think it might be Stephen Bachelor or something like that. I can't remember. I don't want to say the wrong name. Robert um, Wright. Is that right? Robert. Thank you. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. 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 Another book that comes up frequently. That's great. Uh, yeah, and so that, but that one as well would have been trying to like he's he's just talking about the neuroscience of it all and just trying to avoid and then eventually like, no I need some warmth from this. Give me more stories. <laughs> like oh, you, that's what I wanted. Because Minger would do these little, he's the website's quite good, Targar International. And they have he'd just have a view, little really, really short Dharma talk, like mm-hmm. four minutes. And then there'd be meditations that were either 15, 20, 10 or 25 minutes. And you could do whichever one you wanted with the little after the lesson that he'd given. Cool. And if you I think you're, sorry, go ahead. Just that your comments on why Buddhism is true is that's a, a more neuroscience-oriented book without the kind of warmth that Mingyur Rinpoche provides to some of his stories and techniques. Or that's how I saw it at the time. So I don't want to knock it in case ah, it does have yes. warmth, okay? Because maybe yeah. it does. Uh, but I read it in a way of just, and maybe I totally discounted all that. Because uh-huh. I was just like, yeah, whatever. It's a brain. <laughs> yep. Yep. Great. This is all making, I can see, I can see it unfolding clearly. And you definitely had some knocks. <laughs> and so then you start getting back into meditation after six plus months hiatus and you're still having panic attacks. W- what happens then? Yeah. They, I just start to be able to watch them because of that technique, the, the mixed open awareness and awareness of the breath. Ah, and I start okay. to be able to watch them. And then when you can start to watch them, then you, 
Minjer told this great story about that he would get panic attacks when he was like a kid, when they first got sent to the monastery and they were blowing the huge horns and it would just give him panic. And he was trying to get away from it, trying to get away. And one of his big things was like, oh, just learn to be with the panic, watch it. And the mm. more you would watch it, then less of a and, and how is watching it different from what you were doing earlier? Trying to escape it. Yeah, they're just trying to escape it. And you're just when you try to escape, you just make it stronger. <laughs> okay. So so if you yeah. just watch it, would the panic attack happen as it normally happens? Yeah, it, would happen differently yeah, or it might, but it becomes just this kind of like physical phenomenon that you can watch eventually. If you stop believing the kind of spinning out of the mind or stop believing it, because you can't stop believing something on purpose, but you just, I'm going to watch it. And then you watch your body and you watch your heart and your heart goes up, you get a bit clammy. And then eventually the feedback loop starts to lessen, just lessen. Wow. Wow. And so you then learned to just watch panic attacks happen in real time. Yes. Yeah. And you'd watch, and then you'd learn to watch them enough. Then they don't really have, that doesn't, they don't happen anymore. That didn't happen anymore. That's for me. They didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. And, And how long did this take? I don't think that long after I discovered that particular technique, I would say like a few months and then they weren't yeah. really happening anymore. And you were practicing. I can still bring them on if I had some cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that, was, that became useful then because you could reliably bring one on to watch it. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> okay. Interesting. So you, uh, I want to back up just a second. So you started meditating again. How long, how, how much time per day were you spending on this Ming Yerwin Poche? I think a lot of it was informal practice. And that's one of the, I would do the, his meditation, but then because I had to deal with the panic and stuff, watching my everyday awareness just became a thing that I had yep. to do. Yeah. To feel. So yeah, I, informal practice a lot. So I would probably be meditating eventually because he talks about that all the time. He's very about that. All, uh-huh. He's like all the time, every time you can remember, be a, a rest in awareness, rest in awareness. Yeah. And I just started doing it like all the time. And I know that sounds effortful, but it wasn't effortful. Yeah, I I get it. Yeah. And there's this interesting thing about dosage that we often talk about this like formal time, like that you set aside to close your eyes and sit on a cushion somewhere or something. And at some point, the experience becomes a lot about what you're doing everywhere else in the day. And that informal practice can dwarf the amount of time that you're spending in formal practice. But just so I have a sense, what kind of formal hours were you putting in at this point? Oh, 20 minutes a day. Okay. Like that. Got it. So and 20 minutes not a day. Even religiously. Yeah, yeah. 20 minutes a day. And then this thing is like pretty top of mind for you. And you're starting yeah. to watch your experience sort of day in and day out. Got yeah. it. And then a few months goes by and you have more or less cured yourself of panic attacks because you yes. want to watch them. Yeah. And at what point do you start using, do you start intentionally <laughs> inducing them so that you can learn to watch them? Because I would be like, I don't want to live in fear and I don't. And sometimes if I want to go to a concert or I don't know, be in LA and I'm working in a studio and I want to have cannabis at that particular time, I didn't want to live a life where I couldn't do that. So I'd be like, I'm just going to try it anyways and see what happens. Yeah. And I would just do that a bit. And every time you would eventually learn that, oh, look, yeah, my heart rate goes up and freak out a bit, but just watch it. And then away it goes. Yeah. So fascinating. And how many times do you think you induce this intentionally? Oh, a lot. <laughs> a lot. 10 times, like 100 times? Uh, up to 50, I would say, something wow. like that. Yeah. And, and would you like use some cannabis and then uh, do multiple of them? Or is this like each one? is? No, this... there'd be one. And then it would just, if one, I wouldn't try to bring it on, let's say, but it would just maybe just happen because as everybody knows, cannabis can bring up anxiety. So it would just yeah. sometimes happen. 
not everybody sorry for lots of people it gets rid of it but yeah not yeah. for me not for you okay okay wow really interesting and I think there's a it's fun getting snippets of some of the micro level decisions you made because I think it tees up a particular kind of mentality or approach you were taking to this puzzle. Like the the idea of inducing panic attacks so that you can learn to watch them strikes me as not something perhaps everybody get, does when they grapple <laughs> with their own panic attack journey. And, and then where to from here? So you, you're meditating again. You've got panic attacks to a point where you've more or less you've radically changed your relationship with them. What what follows? I think then I start to discover people like Rob Berbea and his teachings. Okay. Yeah. So much heart. And I just start like him, Ram Das, all those people, Rob Berbea, like the most, because it just, I don't know, just the heart that I didn't look for before. Also, he speaks and talks in that kind of nice sensibility where he's never, he's not one that you have to worry about the what with, and he doesn't ever say anything really self-aggrandizing or anything like that. Yeah. It's such yeah. a, understated tone where you know there's even more depth behind what he's saying so when he mm. says something you're like he, he's doing the same thing as that does john hopkins did the musician where he knows something that guy you he know knows something because he's not telling me that he knows something then i'm like i want to learn more about that yeah. that thing so i left the janus behind because i just wanted to now my focus had changed from wanting to feel a certain way to just wanting to be with how i was feeling when i was feeling a certain way and not yeah. reject certain states or chase other ones. Yeah. Got it. And yeah. Then that just, that practice just flourished. And there's still a lot of informal, mainly informal, I would say. Still, yeah. the practice is like not even sitting every day, but definitely I would say by the end of the day, having done good, being aware for a significant percentage of the day, been resting in awareness when yep. state in the body came up, when emotions came up, things like that just became a habit. So formal time is still something like 20-ish minutes a day, but informal time is? I would say less than 20 minutes a day if I did the sit. And then if I, just not sitting a lot, maybe sitting always before going to sleep, meditating and things like that. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And a little bit before you go to sleep too. Yeah. 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 And how long does this go on? Then that's what my routine had been then since then up until the Jana retreat. Then when I I was looking for, yeah, I was looking for a retreat to go to but there's not that many general retreats and also i didn't i'm glad it didn't go as well to a Asian retreat not that i'm sure it works for some people but i wouldn't be the right thing for my psychology but i might have ended up going to one if there was one just to, to, uh-huh. to go because yeah. i didn't know um, yeah so yeah that was that's been the practice basically since then yeah it's been that up to the retreat then going up to the retreat i knew i'd be able to sit because I had done the long time of doing my hour sits, so I wasn't afraid of not being able to sit. And then just after you guys announced the retreat, I signed up for it and I was like, okay, I'll start sitting now. So I started sitting an hour a day on the way up to the retreat. Which was the three three weeks in advance or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I probably started yeah. doing it two, two weeks before. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so just a couple of weeks. And then, and then so you show up at the retreat and your thought process is, I would like to learn the jhanas or you, you have yes. some other goal in mind. Yeah, I realized that I had done a big, I'd done every now and then I would do a slightly like a determined sit for me, which would be like, I did a two hour sit some one day in Ireland and I got things that I thought were pretty close to the Janus and afterwards Mm. felt very like I went for a walk and everything was like lovely and colorful and nice. I was like, okay, this is good. So I expected hopefully to feel like that sort of thing. And I went in with the mind that I had been close to the Janus, but always grasped at them. I still had that 
grasping. I, I know yeah. we still have grasping all the time, but I'm talking about after when the state, when the body would start to change or get an altered state, I'd be like grabbing and then thinking about the fact that I was trying yeah. to get in there. <laughs> so that yeah. kind of thing. And how long had you gone since your last panic attack? Oh, like a year or like yeah, a few months? Yeah, over, over a year, I think. I don't know what the timeline is. Okay. Probably so, a year and a bit, yeah. Got it. So it's sort of been a while since you had been in this like meditation is is like happy and wholesome and largely informal and first yes. informed by Ming Rinpoche and then informed by uh, Burbay, both of whom are kind yeah. of one of nine folks. And then you had some maybe like positive peak experiences like that two hours sit in Ireland. And you're like, maybe I can figure out how to create more of these peak experiences. Yes. And I think that the meditation had actually, the meditation had helped me a lot to the point that that friend of mine who was mentally ill, he, because of COVID and stuff, like we didn't see each other as much. And then also when I was struggling a bit, I found it really hard to see him sometimes. And then unfortunately, eventually he, he took his own life. And wow. that, yeah, like a year ago, basically just a year and a month ago. And it was just, it was, I had just seen him again because I felt like I was feeling very resourced and I was like, I want to help him again and get him back in my life more. Yeah. And I'd seen yeah. him and he'd seen so good. And then just a few weeks later, then he had, he'd taken his own life. And, oh, and David. yeah, it was very rough. And he, at the same time as that, actually, I'd went to the week before he unfortunately died by suicide. The week before that, I, I had gone to a retreat in not a meditation retreat, but like a psilocybin retreat in the Netherlands. And, and I had reckoned with a lot of allowing and stuff like that. And that was my first like trip since the time I had yeah. the difficult yeah. one. So I like, reckoned with one. that. Yeah. I had reckoned with that and I was feeling resourced and like looking forward to getting my friend back in my life more and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So after that, I was very glad to, as well to have had, had the resources to deal with that kind of the sadness and the pain and things like that. And meditation was such a good help with that. Because I think before yeah. I would have been so scared of the sadness uh, and tried to change it. Do you know what I mean? As opposed yeah. to, yeah, with the, the newer practice I was doing, which would be like resting you, in it. You had learned from panic attacks, from a full on physiological effect that there's a different way of engaging with sadness. Yeah. And yeah. so then the sadness even then could sometimes be, I could see it also through some of the Buddhist kind of like philosophical lenses of basic goodness and also just realizing Minja Rinpoche is very much about like the troubles being the source of transformation, the obstacles. So I could see that the reason I was so sad for my friend is because I, he was such a loving person, such a beautiful yeah. person. So to the sadness is there, but it's horrible, but there's beauty too, because it's fundamentally such a, it's not, that's not, some people would be like, what the hell that it's not like you're enjoying being sad, but there's yeah. just, there's, that helps to be able to just see it from a different, slightly different way of looking. There's still really sad, but there's a beauty to it too. There's a beauty um, to it. Yeah. yeah. I'm reminded of the end of Inside Out when Sorrow, you, you know, this, that movie? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah when Sorrow and Joy learn to make memories together. And yeah, that I really, that's a beautiful way of describing it, that there's like a beauty in the sadness and that's a different way of engaging. Wow. Holy cow. So <laughs> meditation has, yeah, first been a part of and of opening up to some big knocks and then helping you navigate some big knocks. And then yeah. you, you came on our retreat after a year of sounds like recovery from a few things. Yeah. And strangely, the retreat ended. The reason I had to leave the retreat just on the last day was because his anniversary mass was the next day or not the mass. Oh, the anniversary wow. The yeah. Day. It was like a, that was, that felt kismet or whatever the hell the word they say, which was, yeah. That was what was crazy. the word that you used? 
is that kismet or something like that 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 kind of serendipitous serendipitous yeah yeah Yeah. Um, great i want to i want to dig in to to bring the the timeline of your journey to a close to your john experiences what those were like what and then it's been a few weeks since retreat and so i'm curious to know what those have meant for you since yeah so i went in thinking i want to get to the channel but knowing that i had to drop the urge but you can't drop the urge on purpose such a paradox Uh, between clear intent and surrender as like the way of arriving at intent yeah and i I felt good in my sits on the way up to i felt like samadhi which is that feeling of the body starting to become concentrated or harmonized was dropping in fairly easily for me when i was sitting i was mainly doing awareness of the breath on the way into the retreat that was my object and then in the retreat, I didn't really, I saw that you, you said, you mentioned you were doing things in the style of Burbay and stuff. So I listened to his Jana retreats. I've done those, listened to those loads of times because I just like listening to them. I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't, at the time when I was doing, I was just doing awareness of the breath, not the meta. And I just didn't listen that much. I've done a bit of meta and I like it, but I hadn't tried it that much. that per- And so I went at the retreat, you guys were like, that's going to be the main approach there. It'd be the meta meditation. I was like, okay, that's. We're at the we're at the retreat, so let's throw let's ourselves try. into that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so threw myself into that, and then I think as I was doing, I realized eventually that I had still maybe doing a lot of, of the concentration style, like absorption jhanas, which is like trying to, even though I wasn't trying to do that, but I was trying to focus quite hard on meta in the process. But I was still I was going to like first and second jhana. I was pretty sure there was a good deepening exercise as well on the first night with Doug, the excellent teacher at the retreat. Yeah, and, that's Doug Craft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. author of Visitor's Map and a handful of other books in the Twin community. That's right. And he did a deepening exercise in the first night, and that definitely took me to areas in around the first, second, and third. And, I went- and you, and this, the first, second, and third, this was like your first time in these states, or you remember these I think from I've past been in the first and second before, yeah, okay. for sure. And like yeah. once or twice, or like a dozen times, or, or hundreds, or... No, I'd say up to a dozen and maybe not knowing what they were and also maybe okay. not that deep. So yes, a lot of the factors of those states were there, but maybe also yep. a lot, perhaps discursive thought or leaving into thought a lot. In I those. see. And you had entered into states that resembled these previously during longer sits or on psychedelics or... Yeah, a bit, a bit of both. Bit, a bit of both. Yeah. Okay. And I think looking back now, probably a bit in childhood too, maybe before you go to sleep, that sort of thing. Some, some things, maybe not, not yeah. uh, one and two, but maybe things closer to the later sort of body changing ones where the form starts mm. to change a bit. Yeah. 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 Lee Brazenton tells me that about 10%, or I think he might have even written his book that like 10% of his students frequently report after they learn the jhanas, uh, memories of having entered them in childhood in various forms some via games are playing with themselves so it can be a frequent thing or some so it's interesting and okay so you have there's a deepening exercise that takes you into the first few states um you're using meta for the first time and finding it useful not that useful yeah finding it useful and i had definitely done a bit of meta, meta meditation before but not like long sits and i think that if i didn't manage to get it going at the start i would just change back to breath a lot yep. of the time I was like, yeah. throw a meta day today. I'll <laughs> just do yeah. uh, something else. But there I was trying to like consistently do the meta meditation and it was good. And I was just trying messing with different techniques of it. Definitely taking everything that uh, Doug would say and, and you guys would say, but then sometimes just mixing it up myself to see what what techniques worked 
like whether it be a visualization or saying the word and then getting very technical about when I did the six oars, which is the technique yeah. and when, and whether I was concentrating on the feeling more, you know, or the saying of the thing. I think I did a bit of mixing up. Now I realized too, I would do a bit of Karuna and everything too, because those things feel pretty similar to me sometimes mixed together, more compassion and, and sympathy. Yeah. yeah. To meta, they, they activate a lot of the same things for me. I think I'm realizing hearing, not knowing about some of your backstory prior to retreat, that your experience with your friend's suicide and your own panic attacks and other challenges had no doubt made you familiar with some of the ways in which like love and grief are sort of two sides of the same coin in some, in, in, in some ways. Yeah, that's, definitely. That's yeah, but, yeah. And that's um, why Meta and Karuna and uh, Meta and compassion can feel very similar to me. Like, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, and those, I, I think there's, the, it's all amorphous and it's all worth break down here, but there does seem to be a deep intuition at some point that these things are all related in fluid and can be, this is like a kind of a core opening quality that they all share. Yeah. Interesting. And so why don't we, to close, let's, let's just take like a, your peak experience on retreat and explain to us at the more micro level, what that felt like, what that was, and then the extent to which it was valuable to you and what your experience has been like since retreat. Yeah. So then my peak experience actually happened at the end. I had lots of experiences I probably would have viewed as peak experiences before that. Um, Amazing how retreat, a, a good retreat will do that. So it just keeps yeah. changing the definition of what peak experience is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And I felt I would have definitely, I could have left on the last day and felt really good about the retreat and been like, cool, I've got a lot of tricks in my bag for practice. I think I felt that the first and second, I was like, I'm definitely going there, but they're not as intense for me as they are for other people. The third was really nice place to be like very equanimous. But then on the last day in the morning, I was like, I was, I said, I think it was the second sit. Yeah. Something like that. And I was going to go for a walk, but then I'd packed my bag up. So I was like, Oh, I don't want to get my socks out. I'll just go do a two hour sit or something like that. But when I sat down, I sat down with no expectations and I said, I'm just going to start because I've got a lot of samadhi concentratedness, harmonization of my mind. I feel like it's quite present. So I'll try something I don't normally do, which is like a sound meditation to like incidental sound in the room. So I just sat there and when people were walking by or the wind was blowing, I was just letting all those sounds come to me and very gently just setting the intention to my awareness to go back to it, not trying to concentrate on it, just saying to my mind, would you mind? <laughs> So yeah. coming back to that as often as you could please and thank you and and then you can think about whatever you like mind and and body you can feel however you like but just if you wouldn't mind going back to that as often as you can and so i did and i just found samadhi dropped in really quick and then i noticed that one of the things that you guys had said as teachers was like just try to get as little tension as possible create as little tension as possible in the system and i had been doing that definitely in, in the sits up to then but then I realized after about half an hour of doing the that meditation that uh, there was like my face was like I had my smile going just because I was smiling because I was happy and but there was no tension in my like fore face here and mm -hmm. not really any in my body a lot less than there had been I was like ah oh, that's no tension that's interesting so I kept that sound how, meditation how many times me. during the retreat do you think you updated on what no tension was a lot yeah 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 so <laughs> but that was like a, a paradigm change that one a paradigm was, change okay. <laughs> yeah definitely. So you had been updating, it sounds like a lot, throughout the retreat, and yet there was yeah. still a paradigm change on what no tension was on effectively the last day. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because I just think that you just, we 
don't realize the state of tension we walk around in. You do yeah. if you end up with a lot of trauma in your body. Like I have a friend of mine who was beaten up once and, and, and because of that, his shoulders are still always like, he finds he gets really bad. Like they just get higher and higher. So they were really aware of tension then, but you're not aware of subtle tension. Uh, yeah. Even when you're sitting, you're, I've been sitting like seven hours a day for how many days and there was still tensions I could feel, but I didn't know where they were. And it yep. was only when they started to go, I was like, oh, my face is so calm. It's so calm and light. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it was like that was very interesting and i was like and then because it was calm i was like okay now i can go do some meta and then when i started the meta i was like oh look you're getting a bit of tension there so i was like, okay just say you're gonna do meta don't try and then the meta just started and it just felt like i was radiating the meta instead of it wasn't a choice i was like oh look you're just paying attention to that now and it's happening and you don't have to do anything and anytime i felt like i was doing anything i was like okay just stop doing something and it just got deeper and deeper. And even that there was like a bit of grabbing then, because I still really wanted to go deeper. So my body would every now and then be like, oh, <laughs> yep, yep. And even then I was like, the only response to that was to not grab at that. So I'd just be like, okay, yeah, just yeah. Like, attention, cool. relax attention, keep doing that. And eventually I ended up in just this absolutely beautiful place of just most calm I've ever felt, including any experience I've ever had on anything. Just so calm but clear so clear too it's like if you say calm like that people i think they assume you're sleepy or something like that mm. but it was like so far from that and i just remember yeah. i remember something doug had said that your mind wants to do what you ask it but it's just it can't do it if it did it all the time then we wouldn't be alive because <laughs> we need yeah. to have a mind that gets us out of trouble and stuff so i thought that at the time as i was in this very deep state and then I was like, oh yeah, so you do. And then my kind of, because of that aversive kind of relationship I'd had with my mind a bit from the panic attacks and stuff, I still had, you know, still a bit of a buildup around those sorts of things, even if you're not getting the panic attacks anymore. Then said that part of that cognitive dissonance started to play out in front of me in my mind and in that deep state where then my, I, some part of me then said, oh, that's okay. I'm sorry that I I'd be, give you a hard time for getting spun out. And then yeah. the part of me that gives the heart that gets spun out was like, oh, I might do this again. And then the other part of me was like, that's okay. It's fine. And it was just so yeah. moving, beautiful and tears. And yeah. And then eventually I came out of it and I just sat there and I was like, I had this really low frequency oscillation that lasted for a good hour. A little cry. It was, yeah, it was beautiful. And it was very like, wow. ah. and because the inner critic felt like it had been turned off in that situation or like just wasn't around because the part of the inner critic that got transformed, actually, I think that's what it is. There's that idea of Sankara, the, the mental formations, and that there are positives to those things too. Like they're not just negative. So I think that part of me that normally would have been like, this will happen again, got turned into this will happen again, maybe. And that's okay. It was very compassionate okay. because of that. It was like, it was really healing and yeah, very powerful. Yeah. Wow. It's a beautiful, beautiful state. Yeah. That does sound beautiful. It sounds like in a sense, like some low level part of you forgive another part of you for the panic attacks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And for like part of me forgiving the, the human condition a little bit, something deep going like you can't control what you think about because you can't, <laughs> like you don't get to decide yeah. what you think. So, and yeah, but also, also doing it in that way with impermanence, with that lens too, and just like loads of these things coming together. And that's what the difference is. Because some people be like, I think people can be very heavy about the jhanas and be like, if there was thought, that's not the jhana. It was like, is that thought or is that insight? Because it, I was not lost in some thing. I was completely with the feeling. And this played out and it wasn't, it, it, that's why I think that sometimes the, you don't want to get, don't take, to look at all these different paths and take and push and take what you want, but you don't have to 
get listen to what everybody says about what every part of a jhana is or even try to delineate them that much maybe just <laughs> try to yeah. drop your attention and it'll happen yeah yeah that's good advice the the you've taken an experimentation forward approach throughout and i think and it sounds like led or, or not held on so tightly to some of the distinctions between these states and you even threw out a side remark i think some i think they happen more intensely for other folks than me and there's a degree to which it can be helpful to learn what's happening with other folks because then there may be parts of the state space that you haven't explored yet that you haven't learned to enter into and mm. that's intention with the fact that like anybody else's map and any map at all is not the territory and yes you, and you found your own way uh, to navigate through with the hard one wisdom of, of some tough <laughs> some, yeah. some real I, do, I do feel though yeah what you're saying i agree i think there's more to the first and second jana to me but i realize that i should the best way to find that out is just to go in I, I keep remembering the doug said it one of the days was no agenda and that comes back to me because even after a tree then yeah somebody would go sit down and like, i want to feel that way again <laughs> yeah yeah and, and i realize that there. agenda creeps in and there's also a big thing when you come back from retreat at a retreat you might have six meditations in the day let's say yeah. maybe you might have one. and so at the end of the day when you go to bed you just pick the best one and that's the one you remember but in a week, if you meditate once a week, you also might get one good meditation, but they were all spread out by a day. So you might be like, that week of meditation wasn't great when really it was the same kind of percentage of good as the retreat was, but spread out in a different Not way. Not a bad idea. Yeah, the, yeah. the fact that the dosage, maybe it's once every six hours, but if that looks like once a week or once a day based on how much yeah. you're doing. Yeah, yeah. And so sense retreat, how is this, is this like the... The best thing that's happened to you in a week, the best thing that's happened in a month, in a year, and what have you been meditating since? What is your relationship? Yeah, it's like the, probably one of the nicest, best things that's ever happened to me in one way, but like up there with like really nice events of life, like beautiful things in life, marriage and things like that. Like in, it's different, obviously, because connecting with others is such a wholesome, great thing, but I don't know, there's a connection with self there and yeah it's yeah it's a beautiful thing and also there's a really Berbea talks about it in one of his talks about you know, we get insurance for our houses and we get insurance for these things and that's a good idea but that's something that the dharma offers something that these practices offer you don't have to if you do them enough and you learn more about them and you don't have to believe anybody or take faith you can see that there's something that's unborn in you that's deeper that's really beautiful and to not have to take a substance or anything like that to find that gives you a real it's not unshakable eventually maybe it is but confidence and yeah a nice this that the world's pretty messed up place sometimes and sad things happen to people people you love and stuff like that but you're not you are at the whim of those things but there's also there's an agency to be able to look inside yourself for some something else for some compassion for yourself or for others or yeah know. and to see that's probably the least fabricated version of your nature by sitting down and like letting thoughts wisp away and you see that's what's left and you're like, okay that's good <laughs> so that's a very nice <laughs> that's thing to, to see because you literally you couldn't be pretending it's not like you were fooling yourself because you stopped your thinking was so much less so logically when you see that you're like yeah that's really yeah and so at practice then sensor retreat has been good i had a really nice practice today yeah just trying not to be too judgy on it because it's only been a few weeks so definitely getting into the third jhana a little maybe the fourth today a bit but just yeah doing an hour a day a longer sit today but i'm not trying to be like 
the thing I was happy about today with the moments I felt best was just when I was like being really aware of when tension was arising or when I was grasping and I was dropping that. I was using that beautiful, that moment of uh, sartori or emptiness right after the grasp was dropped. And I was like, well, that's even, you know, that's just as nice as a very deep and prolonged state. Yeah. The, the release that happens when we enter each jhana or even within each jhana is a mini, like, I've heard it referred to as a mini dibana. It's something like they like to say a lot in the twin community. I was really starting to see that today, for sure. Actually, that was a little just inside. Yeah. There was I was like, oh, that, uh, that's the mini moment of that when the yeah. rest of it felt like that. Yeah. 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 And, the, and the extent to which you were talking about tension at the end of, at the end of the retreat, you'd be like, oh, this is what less tension looks like. Mm. And, and, and how, how that can like recursively be the case. You may have said that multiple times over the retreat, but this was a paradigm shift. And maybe there are more paradigm shifts that await. I think there is, yeah. <laughs> it becomes... Fractal <laughs> tensions. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, I think at the start of the journey, it just seems so crazy or counterintuitive that you would prefer the tensionless, lower arousal, later jhanas to the ecstasy and like bliss and happiness and joy of the earlier jhanas. But as it turns out with enough time and exposure, and there's a different kind of like bliss to the to like the bliss of relief to the release of tension and yeah. that can be so serene and sublime and i think actually that's probably why in some ways as well because of my journey that the first and second are not the ones calling to me that much at the moment because of those mm-hmm. there are higher states of arousal and maybe that's the my experiences in the last few years meant that those were coarser states to me already because i was not wanting to be that yeah. way and to, yeah. to go to a state like the fourth and feel calm like that was like Ah, because that was the one that was like, this is what they're talking about. (laughs) So (laughs) perhaps in in the future, and and that's a really nice thing, your relationship with these things, everything's impermanent, it'll change. And maybe those first and second will be nicer for other things. I want to look into getting better at getting into them for making music for things like that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that is, I think, there's this model that I have in my mind that the Often your first experiences through the jhanas are a process of what in more Buddhist terminology is skillful defabrication. You are learning to pull back different layers of your mind and let go. And, and in doing so, really release into much less like tension, with, into states with much less tension. And that comes with a process of joy all the way over to peace. And then the great thing about mastery of learning to enter into these states on command through this sort of paradoxical maneuver of surrendering, you can then engage with these states in a form of skillful fabrication. And it's like, given this place that I'm moving from emptiness and release and lack of tension, today I'll be engaging in some music making. And wouldn't it be nice if I was engaging in some music making from a loving kindness, J2, or from a deeply serene J4, and learning to then play with these states, like you know, on command and with mastery, ends up being ironically a place of skillful fabrication, even if their yeah. lessons were skillful defabrication. Exactly. And I think that's the Berbea really touches on that and gets really deep into those sorts of things in his teachings. And, and some of them I'm saving for the future because I want to defabricate a little more. I like it. I love it. I, I love it. it. But yeah. he does mention that like making cocktails of them, the jhanas and things like that, mixing them together a little to go on a walk or if you're going to stargaze. And that just sounds beautiful. And again, in his really understated way, it sounds like incredible experiences. He just mentions them like they're <laughs> just so like light. They're like, hey, you should check that out. And then you go check it out. You're like, whoa. <laughs> That's a great way of talking. Most of Berbea <laughs> being like under- understated. Great yeah. wisdom over there. Yeah. Uh, David, this has been super fun. Thanks for taking all this time to share share your experience with us. Is there, as a final question, 
Is there anything you think you'd tell someone who's never heard of these states or maybe a younger you about their value to spark curiosity or perhaps ability to enter into them? Hmm. I think right. it's a hard question. Isn't it? I think I would, I, I think what I would say to them is just that I can't remember the, the poly word for it, but that, you know, that come and see for yourself thing, because the more I like go down this path, I realize that things you learn are so like specific to you and the thing that might resonate with you might be the opposite of what this person wants. Mm-hmm. But I think that maybe is actually the telling thing about it. You'll probably find the thing that you need in there if you follow that, that path. And it's definitely worth a try. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good answer, but yeah, I think yeah. that's the best I can do. <laughs> uh, that's great. Uh, th- I think there's some wisdom in there. So excellent. Till next time, David. Excellent.